Welcome to the Nonprofit Power Hour with Jamila podcast. I'm so excited that you're on this new journey with me. Get ready to hear from grassroots founders as they share their startup stories of impact. And if anyone knows me, you know I love a good story. You'll meet my clients, other nonprofit founders, and hear from industry experts as they provide guidance and strategies on how to successfully navigate the nonprofit space. I will provide training in some of my episodes as well. So come on in and invite a few friends. You never know, you may be my next guest. Hey there, we are back for season two, episode two, and I am joined today by Spencer Brooks, founder and principal at Brooks Digital. Happy New Year out there, everybody. It's still okay to say Happy New Year. It's still just February 1st, guys. <laughs> um, but Spencer, I'm happy to have you on the show today. How are you? Hey, Jamila, I'm doing awesome today. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I'm excited to talk to you today about digital stuff, and we're going to jump right on into it. Uh, so tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do what you do. Absolutely. So um, like you mentioned, my name's Spencer Brooks. I run Brooks Digital, and we're a digital agency, which means we focus on web stuff, the nerdy things like websites and digital design and some research thrown into the mix there. And, and we really focus uh, actually on health-specific nonprofits. So those charities that might be focusing on a particular health issue or helping people get healthier in some way. And so we kind of come and fill that gap to help the organizations uh, that we work with be more effective at reaching people who have health conditions and engaging them and providing them resources and generally just making sure that they can live happier, healthier lives uh, as a result of engaging in some way with uh, the clients that we work with. Excellent. Uh, so let's talk about digital presence. We all need it. We've heard it. Nonprofit space, for-profit space. Let's start off by defining it though. So what does it really mean when we say digital presence and how does that translate for us in the nonprofit space? It's a good question. So I like to think of a digital presence being sort of like the collection of different areas of the internet where you exist. So the first thing that comes to mind for me when I think of digital presence is a website. I think your website is the cornerstone of your digital presence. Without that, you know, there's things like social media, of course, but generally you end up uh, or someone ends up on your site. So your website's a big one. I think about uh, social media. I think about even things like email, but that could extend to apps, for example. Mm-hmm. Like if your organization has a like an app or a program that's on an app, um, really any facet of your organization that touches technology or touches the internet, I would put under the umbrella of digital presence. But for me, usually when, I, when I'm talking about that, it tends to be focused on the website because that is a, a hub that everything else sort of ends up running through. Okay. So as you know, my, my audience is smaller organizations just getting started. As you know, these tech things costs, right? So we all kind of start off with social media. And I'm a firm believer that you must be on social media to be in, in business, even in the nonprofit space. But would you say that the website is more important than social media? Do they balance each other out? Are they on the same playing field or does the website really take lead with that? 
I think that they serve different purposes, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I, it's not a direct answer to your question, <laughs> but what I mean by that is, uh, is that social media, I think, does a great job at reaching people and engaging with them, but it's it's pretty hard for your social media presence to provide a comprehensive view of your entire organization, or it can be difficult to efficiently connect someone with your programs or services, right? Ideally, someone's gonna find you on social media and then they're gonna hop over to your website and connect with like a program or a service there. They're probably gonna learn more about your organization and so I think that they're they're both important. If if you need me choose, I, <laughs> I would say I would say that uh, that a website might be a little more important because I think if you're an organization that doesn't have a website, it's that's sort of like, you know, the cost of doing business these days. And so you're I don't think you'll be treated with a lot of credibility if you're not on social media. I, I, social media is still a credibility factor, but mm -hmm. I really think that that both are necessary and that they feed into each other. Social media connects people with your website and your website can connect people with your social media. And they sort of work symbiotically. Yes, I agree with that. Um, you know, we always kind of start social media and then we move, cause social media is free, right? You can do a Facebook page, Instagram, whatever to kind of get the buzz going. But I totally agree with you that the website is needed to make that connection but also for the credibility factor, whether you're going for $500 or $500,000, your funders want to see that you have a viable website that is protected, that has updated information and that they can just go to this one place instead of searching all the social media, see what it is that you do or how people who need your support can connect with you as well. Um, so that's, that's good to know. So social media and websites are the key to getting your digital presence in order. Um, so you did state that through your firm, Brooks Digital, um, you've kind of niched down to the health-based nonprofits. How did you niche down to that particular part of the industry? So it's it's sort of this culmination of, I think, a couple of events in my, my own life. To give you a bit of background, I won't give you my whole autobiography here, but uh, I, I grew up in a family. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And growing up, it, we were a healthy, normal family. But my brother, um, he had some concerning health symptoms when he was younger that the doctors could never really figure out. And you know, when you viewed them individually, they didn't seem to be a big deal, but kind of in aggregate, mm -hmm. they were concerning. And so for the most part though, like we, we grew up and everything was fine. About when maybe my brother was in college, around 20 or so, he actually started to lose the ability to walk. Mm. And so he really rapidly went from, you know, what you'd think of as a normal college student to basically being in a wheelchair, you know, getting that the disabled permit from uh, for his car and having to grapple with what in the world is going on. And so uh, going th to different medical specialists, they couldn't figure out um, what was going on. My family finally went to the Mayo Clinic, which, you know, if you know about the health related stuff, that's kind of like, if, if anyone can figure out, you're going to, you're going to go to like Mayo Clinic or, or Johns Hopkins or something like that, but mm -hmm. went there and they weren't even able to fully figure out what in the world is, is happening here. And in the meantime, my younger sister, who's engaged to be married, she uh, is diagnosed with cancer. And mm -hmm. so this is like a double whammy 
for our family. Right. And so I'm looking at all this happening and I notice that it's not really just my brother or sister on whom the toll is placed. It's actually the surrounding family members. It's my parents, it's me, grandparents. There, there's a whole network of people around them that are having to go through all this. And it's an all-consuming process when mm -hmm. someone has cancer, major, major disease, there's, it's just, it, it upends everyone's life. And so while this was happening, I was in the early stages of founding Brooks Digital. It was uh, much less niched than it is today. I was mainly, you know, it was just me at the time. And I was doing uh, work with a particular website platform, Drupal. And, you know, anyone who needed help with that, I was working with. But I did notice that a lot of the clients that I was working with were nonprofits and mm -hmm. were even in, in the health space. And I sort of realized that I maybe didn't have the ability to cure cancer for my sister. Thankfully, she, she recovered, by the way, and she's happily married. My, we're still trying to figure out what's happening with my brother. But, you know, some good news there. Yes, I should yes. probably close that story loop before yes. we go too far, right? <laughs> yeah, everyone's like listening, like, what happened? But I, I realized that, like I said, I, don't, I can't fix those problems. I don't have a medical degree but I do have this technical capability to empower the organizations that are helping people with major health issues to reach the people who are dealing with them and their families and inject some more confidence, more trust, more hope into their journey so that as they go through this, that maybe the, the narrative starts to change for them a little bit that even though it's hard it's, it's always going to be hard that they have a little more encouragement a little more hope as the result of engaging with these charities and i can you know through the work of myself and my firm i can help make clients better at doing that and so that's what sort of led me to niche down into this space of health uh health nonprofits mm -hmm. is because i really felt that i i started to get from a personal standpoint, what it's like to be in someone's shoes. And uh, I realized that I could, in my own way, make a difference there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, I think anything that we do when we launch a business, it's coming from some personal place, right? I think 99% of the time it's coming from something personal or just a solution that we want to provide in the industry. And for us as nonprofits, that's all we do is we are solution-based. And you as the consultant, you're a solution-based as well. So I would love to hear more about how you help the Diatribe Foundation. You scaled their digital presence. Let me make sure I'm reading this correctly. From a few thousand annual visitors and subscribers to over 2.5 million visitors and 200,000 subscribers. What did yeah. that look like? <laughs> right, yeah. So number one, those numbers are correct. Number two, I've worked with that organization for a very long time. And hats off to them. I, I played a, a role in that, but they've also done a lot of great work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some uh, incredible founders there and an incredible team that's done a ton of work to, to get them to where they are right now. So that that process started. So the, so the Diatribe Foundation, they help um, people who have diabetes live happier and healthier lives. 
And so they, they are in this interesting space because there's a lot of organizations in that particular health issue, diabetes, that focus on, um, for example, prof medical professionals or um, specific types of diabetes, like type one diabetes. Um, but there's, uh, and th that tends to be focused a lot on research, by the way, because, you know, there's usually children um, mm -hmm. that are diagnosed at a very young, young age. So it's, there, there wasn't an organization really that was advocating from the patient perspective, like what's the patient perspective on, right. on diabetes. So they ended up writing, I mean, just for years and years and years, every month, uh, website content on here's what's happening in diabetes right now, um, latest advances in drugs, devices, um, technology and treatments. And, um, and you know, through a, a lot of work to expand their website, to provide the infrastructure to actually, you know, send all these emails and write all this content. Yeah, um, they were important. able to over time. Yeah, we can't forget infrastructure. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Have to have the pieces together. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, and infrastructure is a huge part of it. I mean, uh, in in terms, of, but the, the big numbers, by the way, a lot of that uh, comes either through, um, you know, SEO value over time. When I say SEO, I mean just like um, optimizing your your site for Google search, which a lot of it just has to do with, in their case, writing, <laughs> writing a lot. Um, and then also digital advertising, right? Google ad grants is a great example of that, um, where you can get free money from Google to, to buy ads. And if you're, um, if you're smart with that money, um, like what the diet prep foundation did is they, uh, we built them, um, a landing page. So someone would click on an ad hit a landing page um, and they, the person would enter their information and then they get some kind of download like diet tips or things like that. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about like $40,000 $40, a month of Ooh. free advertising and you put that into getting a, uh, you know, a big email list, you can start to see how you can really grow your traffic and subscribers you know, through that method. But the backbone of that, a lot of that was infrastructure that we built to help them execute on that strategy. And frankly, you've got to have, you know, to handle that amount of traffic, you've got to have a website that is up all the time that can handle millions of people a year mm -hmm. hitting it. And, uh, and a, a team of staff members who are publishing content, you know, all of them need access they need, you know, the different features. I mean, there's a, whole, a ton of stuff that goes on behind the scenes there <laughs> to facilitate that. Um, but they, you know, they did that over, over the course of, you know, many, many, many years. And of course the role that, um, that I played in Bricks Digital played was to help build out that digital infrastructure for them so that they could scale, uh, scale to that point and of providing all this content, um, now they're the third largest diabetes nonprofit in the U.S., so that's a real success story for them. Absolutely. Um, but you know, that's like the three-minute overview of <laughs> how we did that, right? It's like how you know you can't get it all in three minutes, but that's the <laughs> that's the high-level piece. Right. Thank you for that. So, if we take that model, can it be broken down into smaller bites for other organizations and smaller? organizations, those who are not in the healthcare industry? I think some things can. What worked for, for them, for the Diatribe Foundation, was that they were committed to publishing a lot of content. Mm -hmm. And 
naturally they they ended up focusing a lot on specific tactics uh, such as email because that was a very effective feedback loop because you you publish content on your website and then you distribute it via email and then people click on it and they come back to your website and they get you know or sign up for emails email and website work very well together kind of the mm-hmm. same as social media to be honest and so they started honestly through it really years of writing content consistently to a small audience. And that's like, honestly, what it was like a few thousand people, you know, if that, mm-hmm. and those, those early years were just marked by, uh, you know, they, they would put out monthly newsletters and, you know, they were going on like three, four, five years of doing that. Um, before I think they started to really break into more, more uh, traffic and subscribers and things like that. So honestly, I, th- I think a big lesson with that, um, and this is what I really advocate for any sort of tactics, like when it comes to, when I say tactics, I mean emails and or writing content or things mm-hmm. that um, like digital marketing um, activities that are going to get you to your bigger goals, like getting in front of more people. What they did is they picked a small number and they executed on that uh very well and they did it consistently for years that's a really hard thing to do if you're trying like everything under the sun if you're like picking up a dart and just throwing it and picking (laughs) the next tactic that you read in a blog post and you jump from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing but you never stick on a thing it's you spin your wheels and you don't make progress but the reality is that they they picked a couple things and they dug into them for years and I really commend them for doing that because I think that's what you have to do, especially in, um, it's a very saturated, uh, digital marketing is very saturated. And so if you're a, a really small organization, you're trying to do social media and write a ton of content and, you know, be like, write emails and you're like, oh, I'm going to launch a podcast and a YouTube channel. It's like, whoa, like, unless you can do all of those things really, really well consistently for years, then it's a lot better to just choose the top one, two, maybe three things. Mm-hmm. Start there, get really good at them, get into the habit of doing them, and then you can layer on other things uh, over time. So I think that's like a, a big takeaway that I would pull out of the Diatribe Foundation's case study, I guess, yeah. on how they, they grew in those early years. Yeah, I agree with that. So I hear two C's, content and consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we just get started, we can't do it all. Just like you said, we can't manage social media. We can't have a podcast. We can't have YouTube. We can't have Instagram and Snapchat and all those things. But what we can do is start communicating and communication is the content. Let's just start talking about the vision, talking about the work, talking about the population that you're serving and be just consistent with that. And even if you do start with the email list of 500 people, those 500 people are going to get used to hearing from you. They want to read your newsletter. They're going to share it. And you, like you said, you create that endless loop back to your website so that they can get that additional content. So I think that is a huge takeaway for, um, for the audience here today, whether you are just getting started or maybe you're 50 years in, in service, who knows, but content and consistency are two pieces of the recipe is what I'll call it. The digital presence recipe is what you need. Um, So we keep using this word metrics and in the nonprofit space, we know that metrics is huge because it translates into impact in our capacity. 
So when we talk about metrics, what exactly should we be measuring and what are the numbers that truly matter? It's, it's the million dollar question right there, I think, because the hard, the hard thing about is I'll talk specifically about digital metrics. Cause that's yeah, yes. a, a real, that's what I specialize in. There's, I, I find that there's uh, generally two problems when it comes to organizations and people who are trying to figure out what in the world should I be tracking? And the, those two problems are, first of all, they either have a lack of clarity around how their website fits into the bigger mission of their organization, or they're overwhelmed with all of the different terms and options and the sheer number of numbers that they can track. And so I think the first one, lack of clarity around how the website fits into a bigger vision, I think that's a, that half the time, more than half the time, I feel is that's a, a big root of the issue. Because sometimes it can be intuitively easy to understand that you need a website because you have this gut feeling that if you don't, <laughs> you're not going to be perceived as credible. And, but then beyond that, I don't think a lot of people really take the time to think at least in a structured way about how their website feeds back into the mission of their organization. So one thing that I would recommend doing is thinking about your website as an employee, as a staff member. And if you had to write a job description for your website, what things would it be responsible for? And I think that process helps get you really clear on what outcomes you're expecting from your website and how that feeds into the mission of your organization. And you can definitely do that without actually using specific metrics that can come later. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for example, the, the job description of your website, which is, it's great because it's a 24 seven employee that's working for you all the time. It's, it's job could be to find new people and tell them about your organization, uh, sign up the interested ones to your programs, uh, solicit donations, things like that. And you can sort of write down what are these responsibilities and you start to go, oh, okay. Then, then I can start to, for example, with finding new people, if that's a line item on that job description, then you can start thinking about what digital metrics makes sense to accomplish that particular task. And then you start to maybe get into things like the, the traffic of your website, right? how many people are visiting your website. It could be the size of your social media audience, things like that. And then it gives you a really good place to, to go digging because certainly what you don't wanna do is get into that second problem, which is being overwhelmed with all the terms and the options and the different kinds of numbers and then end up picking everything. And then you end up really picking nothing because you aren't, you aren't focusing on um, a small set of numbers. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you are overwhelmed, then, I mean, some, some good ones that pretty much everyone is going to be tracking. I mean, obviously traffic is a big one um, that, you know, how many people are on your website. I, I also um, like to measure things like the the length of time someone spends on your site and the average number of pages that they visit. 
these are all, by the way, they're standard stuff that's available in Google Analytics, which is the um, it's the uh, analytics suite that is installed on most websites. And uh, so things like, like I mentioned, traffic, um, session duration is the, is the uh, official name of how long someone spent on your site. And then if you are getting more advanced, I do like to see uh, there's um, conversion rate is a, a metric that basically just measures what percentage of the time did someone take an action on, on your website that you deem is important. So that action could be signing up for a program, signing up for your email list, uh, uh, giving you money and these different things and being able to, uh, you can implement some ways to track that on, on your website. And then you can actually see a statistic, like what percentage of your website visitors came and gave you money and being able to track that, I think is, is, uh, really huge. And so to, to kind of bring it back around to your question though, I think a lot of the metrics are going to be unique for each organization because the mission of each organization is unique. And so your goals are going to be determined oftentimes by, uh, by what it is that you're trying to accomplish in the world. And so how that translates into the specific metrics, it, it depends on your mission and your vision, but generally everyone is pulling from the same pool of numbers. There's just a lot. So what you end up pulling out of that pool is, is going to, uh, like I said, depend on what ends up being important to your mission. So those are some, some thoughts I would say around how to choose digital met, um, digital metrics and, and uh, what's the most important. Yeah, I think those are, are good staples, um, especially because everyone is driving something. They're driving people to the website. They're driving them to do something. We want to know, you get to the website, you read the program, does that convert over, right? So I think those are general staples regardless of the industry type. Um, so those are things that we've actually been tracking with our organization as well. And Google Analytics, I've heard of it. We just started using it. I mean, you know, don't say anything about us, but um, it, is a, it is a huge tool um, that we have found to be really, really successful. We just wanna know the numbers. We wanna know how effective our website is or do we need to change the copy? So we've been playing with different things to see if our numbers change and they actually have been. Um, so I'm glad that you mentioned Google Analytics and previously you mentioned um, Google for Google Ads and you can get that through Google for nonprofits where they give you $10,000 a month in ad credit to bring traffic to your site and awareness to your organization. So those are some good metrics when it comes to the digital stuff um, that we should be tracking. Um, so let's now take a shift into talking about the actual user experience in our digital spaces. Can you explain the user journey and how to structure your website around each of those phases? Sure. So I think that it, the concept, I mean, user journey is this fancy term, but I think the idea is just that people will use your website in different ways. And actually one person can come back to your website multiple times with different needs, depending on what it is that they need and the stage of their relationship with your organization. And it's important because, and I, I fall victim to this kind of thinking all the time, is that you put together your website content. And even when you think about your website, you make an assumption about a particular point in time that someone is coming and visiting your website. Like it's usually someone who's completely new 
And so you have these, these glasses on, right? Where you're looking at your website from the perspective of a person with a particular need and at a particular stage and you design your website around it. But then maybe what you fail to realize is that that same person can come back seeking different information. And so what the user journey is, is it's just a, it's a way of just of describing that idea and acknowledging that when someone uses your site, that they are going to come back, they're going to have a journey with your organization and they're going to come back at different points. Mm-hmm. And it's helpful to map out how someone's relationship with your organization might progress and say, okay, well, they're going to come like with health issues, for example, they're probably going to be Googling symptoms to start. Uh, and they might land on your organization's site and start to realize, hey, maybe I have this um, this problem. They might come back later uh, after they've scheduled a doctor's appointment to try and maybe bring some talking points to their physician. Then after they get diagnosed, they're going to come back and go, okay, what now? How do I deal with this? How do I live with this? And so on and so forth. And there's a journey that people take. And it's true of every organization. And so I think uh, you, I think we, we, we have to actually sit down and think about that. And then you'll get these different glasses that you can put on and uh, you'll take a different stage of the journey. Um, for example, someone who has signed up for a program and is coming to your site because they need the address of where they're going to go. You know, like who thinks about that, right? <laughs> right. Like no one's thinking about that, but it's legit. Like it's, it's what's happening. And so there's these different, like these, these lenses that you can put on. And so that's what I mean, I guess, by the, by the user journey is just like these different sets of glasses that you can put on and evaluate your website in a more holistic way. Okay. So it's kind of like a, a life cycle of your website, like what people would do when they come to visit you. Okay. I think that translates over. I think we've done pretty well with that. Just come, I'm doing some QA of my own website to figure out, are we actually hitting that mark? And I hope that you all who are listening are kind of taking a step back and really digesting this information and taking some notes as well to figure out maybe there are some changes that you can make in your uh, on your website and your digital spaces as well. All right, so the next question about our user experience or our life cycle here, how do we convert our visitors to advocates? And that's huge for us because we need advocates and mission ambassadors who can carry the message far beyond we ever could. Yeah, so uh, this is a good question, Jamila. I think a lot of people are are wondering about that. And so I think a lot of organizations, I see it done wrong in a way where it there it's very pushy um, and it's too much too soon. Mm-hmm. So I think of, uh, you know, like this last year, I received a ton of ad- advocacy emails from political organizations during the election season. And, and it's, a, I think I, you know, I, I see you rolling your eyes as I'm, you know, as we're looking over video, but yeah, it's like, I mean, everyone's experienced that, right? Like you've experienced <laughs> that I've experienced that. And it's like, it's, it's a lot. It's a, it's just a lot. And advocacy, it's a highly engaged state. And if you push too much too soon, it's like proposing marriage on the first date. Like it's just going to shut it. You're going to shut it down. going to shut it down. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be like, nope. And, and, and honestly, it's not just going to be like, it's, you're not just going to get a no. You're that, that relationship is actually 
there's going to be a wall that's erected there. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's dangerous to do that. So I like to think about it as introducing your organization in a compelling emotional way over time. And going back to the user journey, you do have to understand that I think advocacy is a stage on the journey and it's a late stage. So if you understand this is how someone could or does progress in their relationship with our organization, you're going to have a better understanding of how someone could potentially get to a, a spot where they're even ready to receive advocacy related messages. And I think that's where like emotional storytelling comes mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. where you are able to tell about your nonprofit's mission in a way that someone identifies with. And I think I use the word identifies um, very intentionally because I think advocacy does go hand in hand with identity in some ways. So like when, you're, when your cause aligns with someone's current identity or even the identity of the person that they aspire to be, then it's going to, it's going to make them feel comfortable taking action. And so I think that's all of that to say is that um, number one, if you understand your user journey, you're going to be in a good place to deliver more relevant, timely messages around advocacy. Mm -hmm. uh, an example of that would um, would even be like a an e a simple email series. Like if you're using pretty much any software these days, like Mailchimp is a simple one. You can uh, create a series of emails that will automatically go out, and over time, you can introduce someone to your organization and send them another email. And, uh, and explain your cause or just slowly over time introduce, uh, introduce to a person that might be totally new, this is what we're about and, uh, and deliver that in a less uh, abrasive way, yeah. I guess, yeah. um, so that that person doesn't feel like they need to get defensive or unsubscribe. Right, excellent. So I heard you use the word automation. That's another big one. So what are your thoughts on automation um, in the digital space? Is, does that help with the efficiency and should that be implemented day one when we're talking about your digital presence? Ah, I'm glad you asked about that. Uh, so, okay, this might not be the answer you're expecting, but I know I don't think it should be implemented day one. Okay. The reason I don't, I don't think so is because automation only works when you've defined an efficient process. Mm. And so if you automate a process that's inefficient, then it's not going, you're going to spend a lot of time and money on something that it, you haven't refined yet. And honestly, I, I, I say this lesson very confidently because it's like, I beat my head against this problem personally, <laughs> you know, in my own business, as much as I have, you know, for clients as well, where it's like, okay, I get it now. I, okay. You know, don't automation is the, the end of a, a journey when you're developing systems and processes. And the first stage is usually to even come up with a process that works and that you can execute as like manually as an individual. Mm -hmm. And, and then over time, you'll probably get better and better at taking the steps to make that process more efficient. And then once you have an efficient process, then you could look at, okay, is, is this worth automating? Can I automate this? And how much time will that save me? And then you can just kind of make this cost benefit analysis. But I'd say from day one, it's gonna be a mistake because you'll probably spend as much time 
like attempting to automate something uh, as you will doing it. And half the time I found when I'm trying to automate something, what I'm actually trying to do is figure out how to do it in the first place. So (laughs) it's it's something new and I'm I'm skipping all the way to the end. So that would, that would be my, my recommendation is I think automation is awesome, but make sure that it's on an efficient process. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of steps to do before you get to that. Right. Yeah. So even something as basic as let's just talk programs because all nonprofits have a program. So you go to the website and you read about a program and you want to sign up for it, or perhaps you want to attend a workshop, right? We want to at least have a web form of some sort where we can collect the information. They get an automated email back to say, hey, we received your request. So here's some additional steps that you can take. I think at the very bottom level, we can implement those types of things. Um, I think we can also get away from emailing me a PDF and print it out and fill it out and email it back to me. You know, we can use things like HelloSign or DocuSign or those software type of things that they do have costs, right? But they're minimal costs. So I think we can start to think automation and convenience for our uh, population and community we serve in just those very basic terms and then just grow from there. Would you agree? I would agree. I think you you bring up a good point of nuance there, which is that you automation has various stages. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about hello, I think there's a, a big difference between implementing a, a, a form in hello sign or something like that, just to get rid of what you mentioned, like the back and forth PDF sending that everyone hates. And that's like a very, it's a very basic way of automating that process. And that's entirely different from developing this multi-step form, web form tool that does everything. And there's an administrative backend and there's, you know, these conditional logic. If they select this field and go to this page, and if not, you know, you go way down the rabbit hole there and it gets really (laughs) complex really fast. But to your point, and I would agree that there are basic things that you can do up front. Um, I think the same principle still applies. Like it, it helps a lot if you know what you're trying to do before you try right. to automate it. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same point, there are some very low barrier of entry automation things that are gonna save you a lot of time. And I think it makes sense uh, to take advantage of those, but also realize in my words of, you know, I won't call them wisdom because, you know, sometimes like I, you know, I've, I've made these mistakes as well, but uh, my recommendation here would be that if you find yourself getting into automation and you're sensing that you're getting in really deep and you're not making a lot of progress, just stop there for a second and realize, is this, can I do this in a simpler way? Mm-hmm. Does it have to be this complex for the stage that my organization is at right now and sort of tailor the automations to the appropriate size and don't try to do uh, create a solution for a problem that is bigger than where you are right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think this whole, the whole mantra of this conversation is it's a stair step. We have to take steps to get to where we ultimately want to be. We can't just launch and we want to do everything at one time. So I think this is a good conversation to get our minds wrapped around what digital presence is, how we implement it, and then how do we scale it? Because I think it's all just a journey. It's just a process over time. And we, the more we learn, the better we do it at different things, but we just have to try not to take on the entire world. <laughs> we just are, are getting started and really assess where we are in the particular moment. 
Um, so how can staff, volunteers, and even board members learn, adopt, and use technology to its fullest potential? Well, this is an interesting, it's an interesting problem because what I've noticed is that oftentimes, really anyone uh, at, at a nonprofit, typically they're using maybe 50% of what their technology is capable of. Mm. So you buy this expensive tool or you subscribe to this great software and you really, you're not using it to its fullest potential. And so I think the other thing that I've noticed about that is that there's, uh, I call it like the, the technology hump, the new technology hump that sometimes uh, software rollouts get stuck on when you introduce a new piece of software, or even if you've been using it for a while. And that's the idea that it usually takes more time and energy for someone to learn a new way of doing things than it does to keep doing it the way that they've always done it. And even if that new way of doing things is better and more efficient, the reality is that you actually have to take more time in the beginning to learn this new way. And oftentimes I find that nonprofit staff, especially if you're just in a startup phase, you, you're like, you're in the time equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck. And it, it doesn't matter whether if you spend $100 now, you'll save $1,000 later when you don't have $100 right now. Mm -hmm, totally. And so, and it's, and that's often the situation that happens, right? And so my view on this, I guess, is that if you are in a position of leadership where you have, um, or, and when I say leadership, it could be you are directly responsible for managing someone or you're in a position of influence, even over like a board member or something like that, create space for them to learn that new software, new way of doing things. Because the honest truth is that if you just dump a new piece of software, say, hey, you could do this, this, and this, and you don't change what you're asking of that person, then you're just actually giving them more work. And if you don't realize that, then you're going to get really frustrated. Mm -hmm. So I'd say oftentimes that like getting staff and board members and volunteers to use technology for its full, to its full potential is first just acknowledging the amount of time and energy it's going to take for them to learn and creating an environment in which they can learn. And then beyond that, you do have other things like someone's attitude and technical aptitude and those are whole, you know, those are very real things. But I think uh, fundamentally, if you are able to realize that you have to create space for it, it's a good place to start. Right. Yeah. Thanks for that. But I think even before we get to that point of the teaching part, we got to take a couple of steps back and figure out what do we need, right? What digital tactic or what digital software, what digital answer do we need for our organization now? So there are so many options out there. How do we best decide what we go with? I know that depends on finances, mm -hmm. how big the organization is, but ultimately also where the organization is trying to go because you don't want to upgrade every five years, you know, if, if it's not required. So how do we have that conversation? It's a good conversation to have. I, I, I'd actually go back and, and reference the website job description. Is this like a good place to start? Okay. 
uh, because I think when it comes to like choosing software and tactics or it even can be, you could make it larger than a website job description. It could actually be what's the purpose of our digital presence mm -hmm. to make it more all encompassing, you know, with software, how does technology fit into our, our mission? You could take that up a, a few steps um, as well. But like you said, it, it, it's a combination of, first of all, understanding what the long-term plan is. And that's sort of the one way is to do that job description. But as you mentioned, you don't, you don't necessarily want to be upgrading too often, but you also have to recognize that technology changes and organizations and strategies change. Mm -hmm. And so there is a time horizon that you have to operate inside of where you might only know in the next three to six months what you really need. And that's all that you have clarity around. And then for maybe six to 18 months, that, that horizon becomes fuzzier. And, and then even beyond that, you, you might not even have a, a clue. But when you're selecting software, I like to think about those two time horizons, like the, the immediate time horizon of the next three to six months. What do we need right now? That's step number one. And then where do we think that we could be going? And ideally, you're going to select a piece of software that allows the capability for you to expand into uh, one of perhaps many potential avenues, but that serves what you're going to uh, need to do right now. Mm -hmm. And so I generally advocate, there's like, there's multiple ways that people think about this. Sometimes there's... Um, Either you'll find the best of breed approach where it's you choose tools that are the best of their, their breed, like the best email provider, right? the best web host or the best you know social media management suite. And then you make sure that those, or you try it anyway to make sure that those integrate fairly well together if you can mm -hmm. and go that way. And some people choose the all-in-one approach where you try to get some big piece of management software. I don't know, like um, Zoho is one that comes to mind where they have like a CRM and they have like the, these um, spreadsheets and documents and all this stuff. And I think there's pros and cons to each of those. Um, you know, Namely, if you get into an all-in-one where you everything does is happening under one roof, it's great as long as they literally have everything that you need under the roof. Because as <laughs> right. soon as you don't, then you're in a really bad place. But then conversely, on the other side of the, the coin, when you get the best of breed, then you really have to consider uh, the fact that best of breed can change over time. And if the systems don't talk well to each other, or if you find that it, uh, you know, your all of your information is split across 15 different services, that can be difficult too. So uh, those are different ways to think about it. But I, I think from a from a standpoint of a, a small nonprofit, starting small with the minimum amount of tools that you need and choosing some stuff that is on the simpler side is a smart approach because frankly, in that season, I think you're going to be making some rapid growth and changes. And you might not even be able to plan six months. If you're in a first year, what, who knows what six months like? It's gonna, <laughs> six months ahead, you could be in a completely different, you don't know what you're gonna need. Um, so I would advocate first and foremost, especially in those first you know, five years to prioritize flexibility mm -hmm. in whatever you choose because you're, 
what you need now is just for now. Mm -hmm. And if you choose something that allows you to make decisions easily, then you're going to be able to move rapidly and adjust course as your organization grows. And you don't want to be locked into your software and you don't want that to be the limiting factor in what you right. do. So I would say like the flexibility is really the, the word I would pull out of software selection in, in the early stages. Okay. And just do lots of demos. Demos are free, right? So they're not going to lock you in with the demo. So I just, you know, we've done this as well. We've done lots and lots of demos and we learn different things from all those demos. I'm like, I want this and I want that and I want that. So that's the thing is trying to, you know, Frankenstein your thing together to make it do what it wants to do. But definitely try out the software first and have those important conversations with your stakeholders who are going to be using it um, and get their feedback as well. Because we I've been there, I've seen it where you make decisions and those who are going to use it, they hate it. <laughs> so let's at least get the buy-in from everyone who's going to be using the technology. Awesome. So in our last uh, few minutes here, I can't believe it's <laughs> almost an hour, but I would like to quickly shift over and talk a little bit more about your personal work in the industry. What advice would you give anyone looking to serve the nonprofit sector as a consultant? Mm, that is a good question. Um... Uh, let's see. I, I, well, the nonprofit sector, it, it's, it's pretty cool because it, it's totally different, not totally different, but in many ways it is different than the for-profit sector. So I think you, uh, you have to understand that what is important, like nonprofits are using completely different language mm -hmm. and they have, their organization structure might look similar, but it's totally, totally different. Like you're not, there's no, there's no salesperson. It's like, that's the director of development, right? Right. <laughs> is, is doing that. And they're like, they're responsible for revenue, but not like in the way that, uh, you know, uh, some sales executive at a company would be. And so what is going to work for uh, a for-profit business is there's a high likelihood that it's not going to work for nonprofits. And there are things like funding constraints, right? Where you have to deal with the fact that uh, how a nonprofit spends its money is public. And mm -hmm. so you, as a, you know, as a consultant, you could recommend you do X, Y, and Z, but you know, maybe that organization's financials uh, are, you know, they're, they're audited really heavily or their donor base cares a lot about their overhead. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, or honestly, they, their money is restricted. So they get grants or they get funding, but it's specified for this purpose. And there's all these kinds of things that are, that are happening that just make the decision-making processes and how a nonprofit operates different than a for-profit business. And so my, my recommendation would just be to, to educate yourself on those difference, uh, all the differences and do as much as you can to, to dig into like forums and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, where like the N10 forums are great, nonprofit technology um, uh, organization. It's awesome. Um, you know, different uh, nonprofit bloggers, think, um, like nonprofit AF is one, right? That's like <laughs> obviously very popular, like does a good tongue in cheek job. Right. You know, of, of highlighting all that, you know, the constraints um, and, and things that nonprofit professionals have to deal with. But uh, that, that, that would probably be my number one 
piece of advice for someone who's who's interested in exploring work with uh, with nonprofits? Well, thank you. I appreciate that because as as we talked before the show, you know, education is huge. Um, as a founder myself, and in the as a consultant, I get, I'm on both sides of the fence, right? So we have to know what we are walking into, not only when we're starting a nonprofit, but those who are looking to serve the industry. Because you know, you're right; it's totally different. So thank you for that, for advising those to get the education that they need so that they can really support us in the right way. Um, so if anyone were looking out to, to connect with you and to get some support in their digital presence, what can they expect when working with you? Yeah, so I think the generally the, the folks that are going to get the, the most um, out of working with us, they're usually um, mid-size nonprofits or large ones that have an established digital presence, but mm -hmm. it might be kind of um, unwieldy and complex. And so maybe you've, you are like the Diatribe Foundation where you've, you know, build a, built up a ton of content, but over time, it's just like, oh, this thing is out of control. Like, you know, there's just so much. And so, um, and then where we would come in is um, in that case, by helping getting the website under control specifically by actually um, a lot of the work that, that we do um, involves like user experience, which would be a fancy way of basically saying that we're gonna do the research to understand why people use websites like yours. Mm -hmm. Like why do people use diabetes websites and what are they looking for and how are the other websites not meeting those needs? And then find a, a better way to organize and present that information in a way that um, that addresses the problems that we uncovered in the research and then go about actually implementing that from a design perspective and from a technology perspective to build out the website and you know the back end to both address the problems that we uncovered during the research but also to facilitate the needs of your staff and how they use the website and the features and functionality that they have um, but honestly and that just starts Know, with the simple conversations. So, um, you know, if that, if, uh, if there's a good fit, you just reach out on the Brooks digital contact forum and, um, have a conversation and just, you know, I like to sit down and see if there's a good match there right. between the, the problems and, and how the solutions that we typically apply to those problems. And if there is, um, then, uh, then it usually makes sense to get good results. Excellent. Uh, so tell us, how can we connect with you? If, if we have anyone listening out there, they want to learn more about this digital presence and protect, you know, potentially work with you, how can we connect with you? A couple different ways. Um, at, at any time, um, I'd love to get emails. Um, Spencer, that's S-P-E-N-C-E-R at brooks.digital. It's my email address. And that is one of those fancy new domain names. So it's not brooksdigital.com. It's just .brooks.digital. Okay. Um, Something new. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. It's one of those new ones. Sometimes it's a point of a uh, point of confusion there. But um, and same thing. If you there's some great content that I that I write um, both on uh, websites and the uh, digital stuff for nonprofits and oftentimes specifically for health related nonprofits okay. um, uh, at the Brooks Digital website. And uh, and in fact, there's uh, I know even for uh, this particular conversation that we've had as well, like I've, I've mentioned a couple um, blogs and there's some articles that I've written about how to like, how to help your staff adopt technology, right? How do you 
um, how do you actually implement the user journey on your website, things like that. And I can um, throw those up in a, a, a research, uh, or excuse me, a resource page um, at like digital forward slash power hour. Um, okay. And that's a good way to, um, if you want to uh, explore some of the things that I've written about the topics that we've talked about, like I'll post that there and, um, and you can learn a little bit more about uh, the way that I think about that kind of stuff. Okay, excellent. Sounds good. And last question, what's one nugget you would like for the audience to take away from this conversation? Consider the people that are visiting your website and design your site around them. I think and this it comes back, I've, I've sat in research sessions and done things like this. Most organizations, they think about how their website can be a reflection of their organization and their structure, but people sometimes don't think about your organization in the same way. Like what your organizational structure is, for example, may not mean something to them. So I think if they're, we've talked about a lot of different things, but uh, for me, much of it comes back to simply putting yourself in the shoes of a potential website visitor and creating the website that they would want to visit when it comes to to, to your organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's that's just the, the different glasses that you can put on, I guess. But that would right. be uh, that would be the one nugget that I'd I'd leave from uh, this okay. conversation. Thank you. And I think your website is an extension of your customer service. Like I've been in the customer service industry for almost 20 years now. In the same way that we want to deliver service over the phone in person, your website should be another arm of your customer service experience. And they shouldn't have to find it difficult to get here or there, or the link doesn't work or the page is outdated, right? Um, so I think that's another major takeaway is that it's just another part of customer service and what makes your organization attractive to funders and also serviceable to those whom you are serving in the community. So Spencer, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much again for uh, joining us on the Nonprofit Power Hour. This has been a good conversation, definitely educational for us to grow our digital presence. So thank you again for joining and I look forward to hopefully connecting with you soon. Well, that's our show. Thanks for joining me tonight. I hope that you have been inspired, educated, and motivated to fulfill your mission. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at jamilakempconsulting.com. Make sure you subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Leave us an awesome rating if you wouldn't mind and a comment. Until next time, continue to do good.